hey, we're all here for transparency. I mean, we love pure water, sparkly diamonds, and see-through motives as much as the next guy, but tax transparency? <laughs> That's a different story. I mean, shouldn't a multinational company be able to reveal the necessities and still leave a little for the imagination? Hello, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, and today we're talking about tax transparency and what that means for multinational companies now and in the future, as if country-by-country country reporting wasn't bad enough, now we're looking at the possibility of public country-by-country country reporting, gulp, and some companies, we're talking to you, Shell, are jumping the gun and releasing incriminating information long before the Global Reporting Initiative's public reporting standards recommendations go into effect next year. Curious, don't you think? Alex Parker is with us today, a senior tax correspondent at Law360 Tax Authority. Alex covers breaking news items like the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, digital economy proposals, and two particular stories we'll be talking about today. The first, Transparency Org's release new disclosure rules on tax dodging, which he wrote, and Shell's public tax report signals broader transparency trend, which he contributed to as a reporter. You can find both on Law360 slash tax authority before joining law 360 tax authority alex was a transfer pricing reporter for bloomberg bna and before that a reporter on politics for u.s news and world report so let's just say he knows how to get to the bottom of things Today, we're going to talk to him about what Shell revealed when it decided to publicly showcase its tax position back in January and what public reporting standards means for less forthcoming M&Es in the future. As always, you can earn CPE credits for participating in this podcast. Here's how it works. We're planting two CPE code words in this episode. Listen for both and email the code words to all one word, the Fiona show at xbs.ai, and we'll reply with your CPE certificate. Now, before we get into the weeds of tax transparency, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. The coronavirus may be strong enough to cause a global pandemic, but apparently it's not tough enough to end a war on digital taxation. In fact, Britain is moving ahead with its new digital services tax, coronavirus or not. The 2% tax, which went into effect earlier this month, targets Silicon Valley tech companies who divert hundreds of millions of pounds away from Britain to lower tax jurisdictions like Ireland. Britain's DST will apply to revenues stemming from UK-based users of large social networks, search engines, and online marketplaces. British tech companies aren't too happy about it as they stand to be affected as well. Of course, the OECD has been working on a multilateral solution, and once that's in place, the Treasury said the digital tax will be repealed. In the meantime, it expects to replenish its accounts by about £500 million a year. Work at home, stay at home, online learning, as if COVID-19 hasn't impacted your life enough already, now it's about to affect your transfer pricing. It seems the virus has tax authorities thinking better late than never, and so many countries are extending various transfer pricing deadlines. Malaysia, for example, has extended the filing date for country-by-country country reports. CBC reports that were due on March 30th or April 30th are now due on May 15th. Poland, too, is relaxing its standard. In fact, the transfer pricing return form TPR for tax years after December 31st, 2018 and ending before December 31st, 2019 is now due by September 30th, 2020. 
Denmark has extended transfer pricing deadlines by default. The Danish Minister for Taxation postponed the tax return deadline for fiscal year 2019 to September 1st, 2020. And since Denmark mandates contemporaneous documentation, guess what? This pushed back the transfer pricing documentation as well. When it comes to protecting precious tax dollars against base erosion and profit shifting, a.k.a. BEPS, Norway is manning up. The country proposed a 15% withholding tax on interest, royalty, and lease payments paid by Norwegian companies to related parties in low-tax jurisdictions. Low tax meaning less than two-thirds of Norway's effective tax rate of 22%. If passed, Norway may see more tax revenue, much needed given the oil crash, but it will also have to renegotiate a string of tax treaties, which have withholding taxes of less than 15%. And if you don't like what you're hearing, speak up. The Ministry of Finance is accepting comments until May 27th. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Alex, where are you based, and can you tell us a little about what's happening with the coronavirus in your area? Sure. Uh, well, I'm based in uh, Washington, D.C., or actually the the company's in D.C. I live in uh, Maryland, just outside of D.C. Um, so we've been pretty much on a lockdown for the last couple weeks. I have um, have not been in the city since, uh, I want to say, two weeks ago, and mm -hmm. um, have just been you know, doing everything I can from my office. Right, right. A, a, a very similar situation. I think a, a lot of our listeners and myself can relate to. How did you get into reporting on tax and transfer pricing? My background is just as a traditional journalist. I started out working in daily newspapers in Ohio and I came here to DC and um, just eventually decided to kind of take a change of path career-wise from kind of my big dream of being a political reporter mm. and uh, took this job uh, with Molly Moses, who I know you've uh, you've had on the show, yes. um, with what was then called Transfer Pricing Report with Bloomberg BNA. Had no clue what transfer pricing was, had virtually no background in tax at that point. That was in 2012. And since then, I've just been kind of immersed in this uh, world. For sure. And even when you were working in, in Ohio, I think you said, uh, were, were you doing political reporting there or was it any in any way finance based? Practically everything. Uh, I started, yeah. I did cops, courts, crime, uh, local government, elections, um, and, and a little bit covering business. And um, so 
pretty much any kind of story at some point I wrote it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, it's funny cause I, I think of like, what did I ever write about taxes before? And I, I remember doing a big story when uh, they wanted to raise the county sales tax in Lorain County, Ohio, by about two percentage points, I think. So, yeah. you know, like, I wrote about stuff like that, but it's pretty different than uh, these uh, multinational issues that come up. And speaking of, as a reporter, you've put hundreds of multinational enterprises under the microscope. What mistakes do you see them making again and again? You know, I don't know if it's my place to identify mistakes. We're going to talk about tax transparency, so I think maybe you could definitely make a case that companies are much more reactive than proactive in terms of, you know, issues that might cause controversy. A lot of times this world of international taxes used to be seen as this kind of self-contained thing that only kind of the the transfer pricing nerds out there understood and nobody else really cared that much about it. And it's changed a lot, obviously, since then. And now it's like corporate boardrooms care, CEOs care, the C-suite cares. But a lot of times they only care once it's in the newspaper. And so I think maybe companies could be more proactive thinking about, like, what are the issues that people would criticize us for? And just deciding, like, well, do we want to do this or do we... Do we want to have a response to it or at least just thinking through things like that? And speaking of, of thinking these things through, in December, Royal Dutch Shell PLC publicly released data on its global operations. Tell us a little bit about the information that was revealed. It was essentially a country by country report. So it revealed, you know, kind of a global blueprint of their operations, you know, how much they're paying in taxes, what they're making in income, kind of a map of their facilities as well as employees. And um, that was, it's a template that I believe it corresponded with the Global Reporting Initiative, which is a, um, it, it was uh, announced around the same time of a, um, a new reporting standard that would be, include these elements and was part of kind of an overall part of this organization that's promoting transparency, uh, corporate transparency, and includes things like environmental, label, labor practices, things like mm -hmm. that. That that's a lot of information. Now, why would Shell voluntarily do this? Yeah, so it's interesting. It's it's accumulation of several different kind of initiatives that have been around for for a while, for more than ten years, that kind of have all converged on this one area of you know transparency, not only of tax payments, but corresponding with operations and income. You know, I can't exactly speak to why Shell wanted to do this, but there definitely is an idea of, first of all, that this is all inevitable, that sooner or later, all companies are going to have to do this. Companies have to submit this information privately to governments, and that's part of an OECD initiative that began in 2015. So there's there's an idea of, well, it's better for us just to, to announce this than to have one of these reports leak. A lot of times leaked information seems a little bit more um, uh, salacious than information that's just released. And also, there's a specific reason why this is impacting the extractive industry. And I can go into the history of that. It, it is kind of a long conversation. But then by extractive, I mean oil, gas, uh, mining, companies like that they have to report some of this information publicly anyways as part of initiatives both in the U.S. and Europe. There was a sense of like, why don't we just do all of it? 
instead of just having to release the parts that are legally required. That way we can avoid having you know, maybe a less complete picture out there. You mentioned a proverbial all of it in terms of the information, but it, it did seem that that Shell's statement from Chief Financial Officer Jessica Ewell uh, said the company deliberately focused on corporate income tax. What, why was that? Yeah, I think she said that it was uh, they're getting a lot of questions from investors um, as well as sort of nonprofits, governments. Well, I mean, there's been a lot of focus on that for a long time. Um, I'm sure you're aware and uh, the listeners are aware that there's a lot of anger and I would say maybe anxiety out there about the belief that large multinationals don't pay their fair share of taxes. And uh, companies would like to push back on this, but it, it sometimes is difficult because, you know, they say we, we follow the law, but the law is not often simple. So one of the reasons why this initiative existed, and I mentioned the OECD, that actually was preceded by sort of a campaign from some non-governmental organizations out there to have this information be reported publicly. The idea is if you look at a global company and you look at where they are paying taxes and you look at where their income is, and then you look at sort of where their actual physical activities are, where are their employees, where are their customers, if they have facilities, where are those, just those figures are going to give you a sense if there's something that seems out of whack. Like if mm. you have a lot of income in one jurisdiction, but you're not paying that much taxes and you have virtually no uh, employees, well, that kind of looks like a tax haven, even if maybe there's a, a legitimate reason why it would be that way. The idea is that will give governments an idea of like, oh, we should we should pay attention to transactions that are going into this jurisdiction. And, you know, it gives um, activists a better sense of um, what, uh, you know, of what to focus on. And I think maybe for investors, um, you know, I, I can't exactly speak to what investors want to know. Sometimes people speak for investors and they say investors really want to know this information, but you kind of wonder, do they or is this just a... A, a different way of, of doing the campaign. But right. there definitely is a sense out there that investors, you know, they're investing in what they think are really profitable companies, but then they're finding out that a lot of those profits are inaccessible because of some sort of overseas lockout issue with, with income tax, or they're based on risky tax um, structures that maybe aren't going to survive audits and there's a sense that like investors would like to know more about that. Hey, just on a, on a point you you had made in in the middle of that la last answer, just about how uh, Shell was very open about the fact that they paid so little taxes in in these jurisdictions, which are let's just say it, they're tax havens. No one no one calls the Cayman Islands anything else. Uh, but at, at the same time. I it seems like no, no. I was, I was, I was just joking that like you can say that. I need to be a little bit more careful. I, I, yes, I understand. It, but at the same time, Shell was very open about, very directly open in this in this reveal of information about how little they paid for having no employees in that area. You mentioned that in, in your last answer. So it, just, just curious because I covered this when we, when we for our news podcast, hot off the press, when when they released this information. Do you think that information reveal was more about? Uh, you know, depicting the situation for what it is in these jurisdictions rather than just owning the simple narrative that we did this, we take advantage of it. 
you know, there probably were a lot of motivations. And uh, again, I'm sure part of it is just the idea that like, this is going to get out. And, you know, I can't speak to this exactly, but so many companies have some sort of entity in a, in a, a low tax jurisdiction. I think their explanation was that it was a trading location, but there is a lot of anxiety out there when you go to tax conferences or you talk to taxpayers that they think, look, uh, it's going to get out there that this report shows that we have a lot of income in this jurisdiction. And we don't think it's totally fair to draw a huge conclusion from that. But what are we going to do when those numbers are out there? And like, you know, sometimes uh, I, I don't know enough about these companies, but like maybe they have a laboratory that just happens to be in a jurisdiction and, and has a few valuable scientists doing some sort of work. And it looks like these scientists are, you know, the numbers won't necessarily tell you that they're scientists and not just uh, like two attorneys who are filing papers to justify a tax haven. And so um, there definitely is a sense of, you know, we'd rather just be out there in front of it and, and, and deal with it. But I also just think, you know, it's a decision you make when you um, have to decide to release the whole document. And, you know, once you've done that, you can't just hide the part that, that looks bad. I mean, these companies are under a lot of pressure to be more transparent. And obviously, they have to make a, a decision about like, is the value we get from being a transparent company worth the blowback that we'll get because some of the things we show are not going to be uh, pretty. Very, very interesting, because I, I did get that sense that that it made them almost look unnecessarily bad. Uh, you know, when in all actuality, uh, other other folks can be a way more blatant about that that same kind of effort. Um, and they, they could do an even bigger information reveal to to kind of justify it. And uh, just a point I want to make if um, because I actually covered the OECD BEPS process and that was the the previous project uh, before the, the current project they're doing on digital taxation. If you followed what they were saying, even the Treasury, the U.S. Treasury officials who are participating in this, this is supposed to just be a transparency thing. But there is actually an idea that this will lead to different behaviors that companies before were OK having maybe a structure that had what they call a, ta a cash box, uh, uh, you know, in a haven, a very lightly staffed entity that makes a huge amount of income. But now they're thinking, geez, we don't want to like show to the world that we have this. Let's let's get rid of it. And there was definitely a sense that that's what the purpose of the policy was as much as it was to to reveal this. It was to to actually encourage companies not to have those structures. Of course, of course. And let me just interrupt here with our first CPE code word for the listeners. That word is crazy, as in the world seems like a crazy place right now. Uh, what did the company reveal in terms of paying taxes directly? Yeah, no, I and I think that gets to the point about like you can take the same information and announce it, and, it, and it's ho hum. But if you leak it, that yeah. that implies there's this like nefarious like secret conspiracy to keep this yeah. information out. And I, I think you get that a lot with some of the reporting is like 
it's, you know, according to secret documents, which we discovered that you, you try and explain like, look, this tax structure is pretty common. A lot of companies have it. It's not like maybe it's not right, but it, it, it's interesting. Yeah. The feedback loop in the media that occurs over tax avoidance and how that news gets divulged, because in Europe, there seems to be this mentality that tax evasion or avoidance is a direct theft from their own pockets, whereas you don't really see that in America. There's a very visceral difference between the U.S. and Europe in terms of how they view yeah. these issues, yeah. because in the U.S. it's more conceptual. It's kind of, well, that's 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 wrong. It, it shouldn't exist, but it doesn't affect me personally that much. Right. But in, in Europe, they after the financial crisis, they've uh, governments have had to cut back. They've seen a lot of services reduced. And so, yeah, it very much feels like these companies are stealing something from me. And and that's why you see even Macron, who you don't think of as being a very, um, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't know that much about French politics, but he's he's not yeah. a, a very like left wing sort of populist, yeah. but he's a strong supporter of the digital tax, um, yeah. the digital services tax, mm -hmm. I think, because he just has to be. And uh, it, j just on that note, because we bring I bring this all up all the time at our client summits, and no one seems to think about this, even when they bring up the difference between the U.S. culture and the European culture in terms of how they react to tax avoidance. But to me, the elephant in that room is the Panama Papers, because that that story had a gigantic impact on literally the entire world except for the United States. And that's that that's got to play into this. Uh, yeah, no, that's a good point, especially because you had, you had European leaders who were implicated yeah. in that. So it, it kind of was shocking that way. And, um, you know, that that had to, it, it also had to do with a lot of different issues that got kind of all rolled up to one. It wasn't just taxes, but it was corruption right. and money laundering and all these things that kind of became this one big. Uh, but tax avoidance being at the heart of that, these these companies run the risk of being tied in for their brand into all of those horrible things, because that's that's what's on the minds of, of especially European uh, readers who read about this. So uh, Shell declared about one point seven billion dollars in pre-tax profit in Bermuda and Bahamas just to lay out the specifics of the case they were making and in, in divulging this information. In those jurisdictions, they had a total of 37 employees. The company paid no tax in the Bahamas, uh, but paid $12.5 million in Bermuda. How does the company explain this? Right. Well, they said that they used the Bahamas as a trading location and that that does not require many employees. So they are, are not admitting that they use it for tax um, reasons, but... Uh, you know, a lot of people are drawing that conclusion just based on on the numbers that you've just uh, said. Right, right. And it, are profit shifting motives behind this? Uh, well, <laughs> that's something I don't totally want to speculate on. But um, I can put it this way: there, there's legal reasons why they can't just come out and say we do this for tax reasons. Um, you know that that would have implications for the U.S. economic substance doctrine and and the uh, the general anti-avoidance rules in europe at least in the in the view of the watchdogs uh, that was their quote was that there's there's no question that that's what it's for and you know i i would wonder why of all the places in the world they chose the bahamas as a trading location most part i don't think they would have a ton of facilities nearby so 
but um, you know that's there there th- that's the thing that a lot of times these could be very complicated and there might be a lot of factors that aren't obvious when you just look at the numbers. Fiona, have other companies done this before? Yes. Vodafone Group PLC comes to mind. The UK-based telecommunications company has published an annual tax report since 2013. Alex, can you tell us more about Vodafone's decision to report? Right. So Vodafone had been accused of using tax havens, and they decided to publish the annual report back in 2013. Vodafone is kind of there in the industry that you think of as being more involved in these kind of things. Uh, Obviously, Apple has gotten a lot of uh, criticism over the years. And the kind of companies that are um, in the tech field that have a lot of um, of value in their uh, IP and brands that because those are so easy to uh, move, you see a lot of uh, tax structures that get criticism and and um, scrutiny. And let me interrupt one more time with our second CPE code word. The word is revealing, as in public reporting would be very revealing for many companies. And Alex, specialists say that Shell's industry had something to do with it. I know you were talking a little bit about this before in terms of extraction uh, in that sector. How so? Um, well, this is this is where this is really interesting because it, it actually does not have to do with tax avoidance so much, but it it goes back a long time actually, um, and I think a few different initiatives that were looking at the extractive industries. The Helsinki Commission in the U.S. had done a a study of some of these issues in the um, former Soviet Union states that you know have a lot of um, oil and gas. You know, corruption is a big issue almost any place that you have um, these kind of, you know, natural resources. And a lot of countries um, or a lot of citizens in these countries feel like they don't see where the money goes. That, you know, they know that these companies are here. They know they must be paying a lot of taxes, but for some reason, it doesn't seem to trickle down into services, better governments, that sort of thing. And so um, there's been an initiative for at least the last 15 years to have extractive industries publish the amount of money they are giving to governments so that that can be kind of the first step towards evaluating these issues of corruption and misuse of resources. And so it was actually in the Dodd-Frank bill that passed in 2010. it was an amendment from then-Senator Ben Cardin and then-Senator Richard Lugar, a Republican Democrat, that included a, a provision that would require these industries to make these reports to the SEC so they would be public. And even though that uh, law was passed 10 years ago, it has never gone into effect for a lot of different reasons. The uh, SEC is was not very uh speedy at um at implementing it they're they're not a big fan of when they are given this kind of responsibility of you know something that's not related exactly to investors and the american petroleum institute when the sec did issue the rule they sued 
they won some victories in court. And when the Trump administration came in and uh, a new Congress, they actually voted to rescind the, the regulation. So there's been a whole a long saga with that. But then meanwhile, in Europe, similar rules are already in force. Like I said, it doesn't relate exactly to tax avoidance, but it's kind of converged onto that because, you know, tax avoidance is an issue in the extractive industry, um, even though it doesn't involve intellectual property so much. You still have issues. Companies will use management fees. Uh, you know, they, they charge a markup when they for, for that to their subsidiaries, and there'll be questions about whether or not the management fees are appropriate. You also, a lot of these countries are um, poor developing countries, and they don't necessarily have the most sophisticated tax administrations to enforce the laws to enforce transfer pricing, which, as we know, even the you know, even the IRS and even the, the best tax administrations have problems enforcing that sometimes. And so um, that's why it kind of converged into just being, you know, both corruption and tax avoidance. No, 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 no. We like long answers in, in, in especially passionate ones. But just to boil this down, uh, even if Shell is a leader on tax transparency because of the industry that they're in, all these extraneous factors, that may not be the case on uh, when it comes to tax practices. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to single Shell out because of course. that's something I, I, I haven't uh, looked at. But um, there are, you know, it, I mean, I guess every industry has to a degree, you know, questions about the tax structures that are used. But the there definitely has been criticism of the major oil, gas, mining companies for how they um, for s some of their tax practices, especially just because they're they're operating in um, developing countries that are so starved for resources that mm -hmm. um, organizations like Oxfam spend a lot of time looking at l looking at what these companies pay in taxes and whether they could, you know, be paying more. Right, right, right. Well, almost it's it seems like a basic prisoner scenario. They feel like their best play is to be as honest with the police, so to speak, as possible, um, because the rest of their industry kind of puts them in this situation. You, you mean the prisoner's dilemma? Right? Prisoner's dilemma. Yes. Forgive me. Forgive me. Misquoting game theory. But the uh, yeah, no, I think there's there's definitely um a sense of like maybe we can do we want to fight this together or try and be um seen as like the the honest one in the group right hi i'm matthew Demello, and you may know me as the host of the fiona show cross-border solutions weekly transfer pricing podcast and while i love to discuss transfer pricing this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. And if you've ever taken uh, Econ 101, one of the, you know, because price fixing is outlawed, something that 
companies do. You see this with with furniture companies, and this is basic game theory of you know I'll undercut anybody's prices, and that's basically a, a, a way of telling the rest of their market, um, the rest of their competition, don't go under this price, or you'll have a price war. It's almost that kind of silent messaging through PR action. And uh, Fiona, the Global Reporting Initiative has set public reporting standards. Can you tell us about those? The Global Reporting Initiative is an international organization that provides a framework for companies to report their economic, environmental, and social impacts. The group has set public reporting standards, based on country-by-country reports, that are set to take effect next year. But the standards aren't a law, so it is still up to an MNE to decide to adhere to them. And let's talk about the Global Reporting Initiative. They've released reporting standards that will go into effect in January 2021. Uh, yes, I believe that's true. Um, that so I mean again, that's sort of um, related to all this, and it's trying to have a standard out there that companies can choose to follow or choose not to, but that at least is there, and also they can be judged against. Um, and and I, I believe it's it's based strongly on the um, the similar rules that the OECD implemented, but to be only used for private reporting. I, I wanted to talk a little bit because it's really interesting, sure. actually, to pull in some of the coronavirus things. Because I, I don't know if you saw my story, but um, Chris Van Hollen uh, tried to have this included in the the coronavirus bill. There's been just a a strong um, kind of political movement to try and push the standard, um, you know, through any mechanism that might be strong enough to, to compel compliance. Uh, you've had um, a group of lawmakers, uh, including Senator Chris Van Hollen from my state of Maryland, have pushed the Financial Accounting uh, Standards Board to start including these country-by-country requirements in their standards, which are the standards that are used by the SEC. So it would be essentially a a government requirement. And uh, they've, so far, have not, I think, they've they've kind of put that off. But they have in the past looked at some versions of a country-by-country reporting system just as kind of something that they say investors would be interested in, but they've, they've decided not to go that direction for now. And Chris Van Hollen actually pushed for this reporting requirement to be included in the recent coronavirus relief bill, the $2 trillion um, legislation that any uh, large company, which would take the assistance in the $500 million um, fund from treasury would be required to, um, to, submit these public country by country reports. So, you know, similar to what Shell and Vodafone have done. Uh, that was not included in the final bill, but I think it shows the way that this is something that's that's out there and that is always going to be something that they're pushing for whenever there might be a chance for it to be included in some bill or mechanism. So just to be clear in terms of the proposal uh, that didn't make it into the bill, the proposal said if you accept the help then you need to abide by these tax rules yeah that was the proposal like so so if you remember how this happened so at first it was just going to be a 500 billion dollar fund with like no strings attached at all democrats pushed back on that and then elizabeth warren came out and said you know any any company that gets our help needs to should, should have to do 
and she had a whole list. It was like a $15 minimum wage, uh, labor on the board, um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and stock buybacks was the big thing that they did agree to. And so I kind of was wondering like, huh, there's, there's no tax thing there. I wonder if they'll do a tax thing. And then, uh, Chris Van Hollen was like, yeah, and, and we should add this one too, that, that any company should have to report their, um, that, that accepts the help should have to do uh, country by country reporting disclosure. Right. So this may not have passed, but it is more or less a, a canary in the coal mine, so to speak, for, for where things seem to be going with with future bailout money. Well, at the very least, that that it's it's out there. And, um, yeah. you know, when I was when I was covering the OECD BEPS process, I would go to these conferences and um you know, there was a lot of talk about how to keep these reports secret and, you know, because they'd be exchanged between governments using the tax treaties that exist and, you know, have pretty strong mechanisms in it. But it was sort of like, well, in the past, it would be specific information. So if you saw it out there in the front page, you kind of know who leaked it because only this other country had access to it. But in this case, it was one report that was going to go around to everybody. So you didn't know who leaked it. And for the most part, people just didn't take all that seriously, the idea that they would stay secret. And everybody, I I don't, you know, it's funny, these reports have kind of fallen a little bit back in in everyone's mind because of uh, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and the, the digital tax, but they're, you know, companies have been complying with them for a year now. And I think, you know, when they're putting them together, companies are thinking, or at least they probably should be thinking, mm-hmm. you know, what is this going to look like if it leaks? Because there's a pretty decent chance it will at some point. So everyone kind of thinks that the end game is that they'll be public eventually. It's just sort of how long will it take to get there? And, uh, you know, the the EU pushed for them to be public for a while, but then eventually they they eventually pulled back on that. But there is a strong political impulse to to eventually get to that point so for the next year the global reporting initiative standards will go live in january but they're not mandatory they're more like guidelines countries can adopt them or not but in the case of shell in the extraction industry do you think that more companies are going to be motivated to self-report on their own versus waiting till it's absolutely necessary you know um that's a really good question i i don't know um I, I I think definitely more companies will do it, uh, and like Lord only knows how much, you know, what's happened in the last month is going to affect everything. It, it is the kind of paradigm shifting thing. So so who even knows what the world's going to look like? But you know, we've we've done stories about how this might actually increase the the attention to digital companies and and the the and what they're doing with taxes. I think um, you know it's interesting. I because I go to a lot of tax conferences. Sometimes it just seems like my whole life is just going to one to another. And uh, they, they talk about, like, you know, what they could do. And I've, I've sat in discussions where they talk about, like, what are standards that we could maybe adopt? And because, you know, um, other issues like environmental, you know, if, if you're a company and you want to say, that, that we're not just following the laws, we want to go above and beyond to, to be an environmentally conscious company, there's, you know, standards you can follow. And that way it, it's, you don't have to make each decision on its own and you can 
tell your shareholders, look, we made this decision. We think it's in your interest for us to follow it. It doesn't come down to like every single thing. And you, you see that with like labor practices too, like fair trade coffee. And so people wonder like, what is the, like, what is the fair trade for tax? And nobody can really come up with a good idea for it because it's, it's so complicated and there's so many different governments and to, to an average citizen, it's just like, well, why don't you just pay the statutory rate? And then you try and explain like, well, that's, that's based on a tax base and we need to figure out what our tax base is and every country does it differently. So this is at least one thing that it doesn't affect your actual tax practices, but it is a very clear standard that's out there. And if a company wants to say, look, we, we want to show people that we, we take seriously our tax obligations and we're not just going to say that we follow the letter of the law. We want to say we go above and beyond to make sure that we are for lack of a better word, like sort of patriotic, that we we support the country and the governments that we operate in. So I think that's the reason why companies might be interested in doing it. And and though it doesn't change tax practices officially as a policy, it does predicate changes in the culture of how companies hand in their documentation, so so to speak. Yeah, no, and, and like I said, that was even somewhat the idea. And that was also the criticism at the time when the OECD was considering this, some people said, look, this is essentially a formulary apportionment transparency standard. And that's a whole different scheme for global taxation, which is instead of the, the current system that's based on, you know, transfer pricing between entities based on sort of market rates, you would just say, look, uh, globally, what are your sales? What are your employees, what are your other factors, and we will take your global income and apportion it to countries that way based on a formula, which in theory the countries would get together and agree to. That's also the criticism they make of Pillar 1 is that it's it's a little bit of formulary apportionment and that a little bit will down the line eventually turn into every to, to full formulary apportionment. But yeah, it's okay. a lot of times based on sales because that's kind of the obvious thing, but also yeah. you could base it on income or base it on employees, on other factors. The criticism of the this for country by country is that, look, if you, if you create this reporting that's based on country by country data, companies are going to start to follow it for their actual payments. And it's kind of this soft way of enforcing a formulary system so if we're going to do that, let's talk about whether we want to have a formulary system. And there's a lot of criticisms of a formulary system, and there's a lot of people who also think it's it's the ideal system. So, but but it's a very big debate because you know it would be essentially a sea change in how um, in how global taxes work. But you know, I, I think in this case, it's probably more on the margins. It's not so much that companies are going to think about like their whole tax structure just based on the reports but you know they're definitely going to think about the fact that like it looks bad to be reporting such a huge amount of income in bermuda let's talk about whether we think that tax structure um create like like that the 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 value of that tax structure is more or less than the value that we would get by having these reports out there and showing that we did not have that kind of tax structure. I, I think it definitely does affect behavior. And also you, you, you don't want to, what my editor used to say, uh, 
my my international editor who was a, a principal at one of the big four would say um you don't want to wave a red flag at the bull like you don't want to send a report to a tax authority saying look we got all this income in bermuda but it's totally you, you don't need to worry about it but just know that it's there like, well, of course, they're going to look at it and they're probably going to be pretty tough in terms of how they enforce it. So it is interesting. And I know you've referred to this in your writing as sort of fair trade for tax, which is rather astute. I, I wish I could take credit for it. But that, like I said, I've sat in panel discussions where they they would talk about that. And like some somebody once said, like having a sticker that says I pay double tax. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like a baby on board or my kid's an honor student. Yeah. Uh, if you'll forgive me, I think something um, that's come up in the last two weeks, we were talking about coronavirus, we're talking about the stimulus. Uh, I know this has been kind of a remote conversation, but it's getting louder. And I know the president had a comment on it in one of the briefings. And that's this growing feeling that if companies do receive this was specifically put out there for the, the cruise lines and the, the airlines, which is if you receive stimulus money or should that be contingent on you moving back your operations off the Cayman Islands, off the tax havens and back into the United States? The president did in the last briefing where this was brought up, he did demonstrate a, a, a very much an open mindedness to making that the case. And where hitherto it had been pretty much something only the kind of the Elizabeth Warren left or so was kind of talking about. Do you think uh, where are we in terms of, you know, the writing being on the wall for 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 these industries and tax? Havens. Yeah, so um, that I, I'm really glad you brought that up because I uh, just happened to have written a, a few pieces about that. Um, the so the, the cruise lines are somewhat of a special case. They have always been registered offshore, um, and I think it's the big. I I, I don't want to say which ones because I, I off the top of my head don't remember which which of them is in which con- country, but the. Um, and there's a special provision in the code which specifically exempts foreign shipping companies from federal taxation. And that is this goes back, um, I think, like a century or, or many decades. No, no, it goes back to the 1960s. Um, the idea being that to promote global trade, we don't want to get into a bunch of fights with other countries about like how much of this shipping line we should be able to tax. So let's just leave it that everybody gets to tax their own um, shipping companies. And that's simple enough, but, and it, it just because of the way the exemption is, is worded, it applies to the cruise lines. And actually there was an attempt to create a new tax system specifically just for the cruise lines in the tax cuts and jobs act that passed in 2017, it would have, would have been based on how often, like how long uh, the cruise is within 12 miles of the U.S. shoreline, and there would there would be a tax calculated that way, but it got pulled at the last second. Uh, the senator from Alaska, Senator Sullivan, uh, opposed it because his, you know, a lot of the Alaskan economy relies on on the tourism from um, from cruise lines. So so actually the and and so this. You know, Democrats, as soon as Trump started talking about bailing out the cruise lines, Democrats almost immediately said, like, why would we bail out companies that are based offshore and that that specifically are trying to avoid taxation? And the bill actually includes language which says it will only this income can only go to companies that are 
created under the laws of the United States, which effectively means they're not registered offshore. There's some question of how that would apply if you did it through a subsidiary. And I'm not totally sure if there's a good answer for that, but the, the cruise lines have made it clear they view it that this is being pro prohibitive for them and they're going to have to work with the administration or work with Congress for something in the future if they uh, want to get some sort of federal assistance. Because um, So, you know, it it's funny because you, you, you can talk about all the different tax structures that are out there, the the double Irish, uh, the Dutch sandwich, all that. Nobody really understands them, but everybody understands the concept of of being registered offshore so that you don't have to pay taxes. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp and I, I think that was an absolutely fascinating breakdown alex and 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 most fortunately for our listeners very very timely considering all of the changes in the news uh currently taking place but we still have time for my favorite part of the show called what we want to know we put a transfer pricing expert in the hot seat for a rapid fire round of questions alex are you ready Oh, dear. Um, yes, I am. Trust your gut and, and you'll be fine. That was question one. Uh, a colleague describes you as super smart. Another describes you as super hardworking. Which one means more to you and why? Oh, um, super smart. I like it. Finish this sentence. If I weren't a tax reporter, I'd be a... Movie director. Movie director. Ooh, cool. Any any particular genre of film, if I can riff off of that? I guess science fiction. Yeah was my dream growing up you know yeah okay well hey there's always time how do you handle your hit the fan moments so uh, to, to give you a little bit of a long answer my first job was covering crime for a local newspaper in ohio and everyone told me you hate it now but in your next job everyone's going to be screaming with their hair on fire and you're going to be calm and it totally <laughs> has been true <laughs> <laughs> Once you do the crime beat, it, <laughs> nothing else can scare you. you know, when you've exactly when so it it so I guess that that's my answer there. Yeah, people define success in different ways. What's your definition? I guess it's um, just feeling feeling like you um, are someone who is respected in your field, but chances are you always think you'll you'll know it when it happens but you probably don't and you always feel like success is just around the corner 
And maybe it's that that drive, that journey of keep looking around that corner that that uh, that keeps us all going. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun and a nice detour from the coronavirus discussions happening everywhere. Imagine that. Don't let this be your only COVID-19 break, though. Subscribe to The Fiona Show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and we'll fill you in on important transfer pricing topics every week. And don't forget about our sister podcast, The Fiona Show, hot off the press, where we keep you up to speed on transfer pricing headlines everywhere. This is Matthew DeMello, and I host, edit, and engineer this podcast. Executive producer, Marilyn Mitchell. Strom writes our scripts. Catch you back here next week with another riveting transfer pricing discussion. Be well. Be well.